Hello, this is A History of Europe Key Battles Podcast. This is part three of three on the English Civil War. Parts one and two available on your podcast provider. On the 4th of January, 1642, King Charles I of England entered the House of Commons with an armed guard to personally arrest a group of members for treason. No English sovereign had before entered the House of Commons uninvited, so such an invasion of the chamber was considered a grave breach of protocol. Having displaced the Speaker from his chair, the King asked where the MPs were who he wished to arrest. Realising they had been forewarned and fled, Charles abjectly declared, All my birds are flown, and was forced to retire empty-handed and humiliated. The event marked the end of many months of political conflict between King and Parliament, and the beginning of civil war. Parliament quickly seized London, and Charles fled the capital for Hampton Court Palace on the 10th of January, moving two days later to Windsor Castle. After sending his wife and eldest daughter to safety abroad in February, he travelled northwards. His objective was to set up York as an alternative capital, having first seized the city of Hull with his arsenal of 20,000 weapons and 7,000 barrels of gunpowder. The King had appointed the Earl of Newcastle to be the Governor of Hull, but he was beaten to it by the swift action of a young parliamentarian, John Hottam the Younger, who persuaded the mayor of Hull to admit his own men and put his father, Sir John Hottam, in charge. So when Charles and the large militia retinue arrived, he was refused entry. Left outside in the rain, Charles had to retire and declared Sir John Hottam a traitor, but was powerless to enforce it. In the first months, the war was fought with words, both sides issuing pamphlets and declarations, justifying their actions and asking for support. Charles's supporters argued that the king was facing an unlawful challenge to his office and needed help to put down the rebellion. Parliament, on the other hand, claimed that because the king, advised by evil counsellors, had taken the law into his own hands, they had the responsibility of bringing him to his senses. Across the country, there were a series of local skirmishes and struggles for control of garrisons, coastal towns and arms depots. In July, royalist armies had mustered in Herefordshire, Worcestershire and Warwickshire, but only in August, when the King raised his standard at Nottingham, was war formally recognised. By then, the raising of 16,000 parliamentarian soldiers was in full swing, and at first it looked as if they held all the advantages. They had control of the capital, London, the surrounding counties and East Anglia. Since these were the most prosperous regions of the kingdom, this gave Parliament a solid power base. London, as the largest port, gave the parliamentarians control of the bulk of customs revenues and was a major reservoir of manpower. As long as the capital was under their control, the king could not win the war. In terms of geography, the north and west were generally sympathetic to the king, yet all counties were divided. Westminster was also split, 
where about two-fifths of MPs left London to join the King's cause. Many families were also split in their allegiances, although it's sometimes believed that this was a convenient ploy to save family property if one or the other party finally prevailed. Also, though some held their allegiances most fiercely, others were fickle, calculating or conditional. Religious dissenters overwhelmingly took the side of Parliament, while Roman Catholics supported the King, as did a majority of the greater landowners, since his privileges guaranteed their own. Universities and cathedral cities were largely for the King, while dockyards, ports and the navy more inclined to the Parliament. There was no marked difference of physical appearance between members of the two sides, whereas parliamentarians spurned the term given to them, roundheads, royalists were happy to be called cavaliers. Another term used was ironsides, given to those who fought with Oliver Cromwell, but also favoured by other parliamentarians. A greater number of towns, however, wished to stay out of the conflict altogether. Indeed, most of the general population were not strong enough for one side or another, although they were alarmed about the impending crisis. At first, the king looked in a weak position, but as summer turned to autumn, his forces gained strength. His side was joined by Prince Rupert of the Rhine, who, as Frederick V of Pelotonate's 23-year-old son, had already served as a cavalry commander in the Thirty Years' War. Charles moved the town of Shrewsbury in Shropshire from where he was able to mobilise what became the heartland of his support, Wales, the West Midlands and the North of England. He was helped that public opinion was appalled by stories they heard of ill-disciplined parliamentary forces destroying church property and stealing from the population. Although the truth was that royalist forces also indulged themselves in plunder. In late September, a division of parliamentarians rashly attacked a royalist force under Prince Rupert at Poet Bridge near Shrewsbury and were routed. Rupert then withdrew to Shrewsbury, where a council of war discussed two courses of action, whether to advance towards the parliamentarian army led by the Earl of Essex near Worcester, or march down the now open road towards London. The council decided on the London route, so the army left Shrewsbury on the 12th of October, gaining two days' start on the enemy. This had the desired effect of forcing Essex to move to intercept them. And so, in mid-October, took place the first major battle of the war, when Charles's army encountered the Earl of Essex at Edgehill in Warwickshire. Both armies, raw and ill-trained, suffered heavy casualties. Next day, after a cold night in the fields, they each backed off. The royalist threat to London persisted until November, when the gathering of enemy forces in and around the capital dissuaded the king from an assault. He retired to Oxford, which became his wartime capital. When the war broke, both sides believed that a single battle would decide it. But as winter set in, it became painfully apparent that neither side enjoyed an overwhelming advantage, and that the fighting was likely to drag on.
Both sides now considered their strategies for the next stage of the conflict. The Royalists planned to descend on London, while the Parliament controlled ports of Plymouth, Bristol and Gloucester in the west, and Hull in the northeast were targeted for capture. Parliament in turn divided its army into so-called associations, such as the Eastern Association in East Anglia, commanded by Oliver Cromwell. The first half of 1643 went in Charles's favour. He had three principal armies. His own in Oxford took on the Earl of Essex in the Thames Valley and Buckinghamshire. A second army, led by the Earl of Newcastle, after hard-fought engagements in Yorkshire, marched into Lincolnshire and threatened East Anglia. And a third, that of Sir Ralph Hopton, a critic of Charles's pre-war rule, but who rallied to him in 1642, marched east from his base in Cornwall and routed parliamentarians at Roundway Down in Wiltshire. The mood in London was despondent. The war had cut off supplies of coal from the north and people were dispirited at funding a war when money was in short supply and by the absence of good news from the war fronts. One area where parliamentarians held advantage was at sea, since the navy supported them. However, even that came under threat with the royalists creating their own navy, starting with ships captured after the fall of Bristol. In the west and southwest, the parliamentarians were left holding on to just one city, Gloucester, on whose fate the control of the Severn Valley and its supply lines depended. Charles set about besieging Gloucester on the 10th of August, hoping for a quick result. Its young governor, Edward Massey, however, stood firm, a bold decision given that he had only 1,500 men. The atrocious summer weather hampered the besiegers' plans, filling the mines with water so they could not be fired. The Earl of Essex, realising the importance of Gloucester, gathered his troops in Hounslow Heath and rushed west to try and break the siege. As his troops approached, he ordered his artillerymen to fire off their guns as an encouragement to Massey and the garrison. The gesture was much needed, for they were down to their last reserves. The sound of gunfire also alerted Charles to danger, who, not wanting to be trapped between Essex's army and that of the garrison, ordered the siege to be lifted. Massey's brave stand, which had lasted almost four weeks, had saved the city for Parliament. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 
the Earl of Essex and his army could not remain in Gloucester indefinitely, since they were needed elsewhere. The riders waited for their withdrawal, hoping to cut them off from London. For a few days the troops manoeuvred, marched and countermarched, both sides making for the capital. Essex succeeded in capturing the town of Sirencester. Its supplies and ammunition were much welcomed by the parliamentary soldiers, who had been on the march for nearly a month. Prince Rupert, at the head of the Royalist cavalry, pursued them, his intention being to force Essex into open battle by blocking his route to London. The two armies drew up in line to face each other, just south of Newbury and the River Kennet, on the morning of the 20th of September, each about 14,000 strong. The first battle of Newbury lasted all day, with the parliamentary forces pushing slowly against the Royalists through winding lanes and hedges. It was a confusing battle, with heavy losses on both sides, much of it from artillery fire. That night the Royalists withdrew, allowing the parliamentarians to continue onwards to London. The confused nature of the battle was typical of the war. Peter Ackroyd, in his book on the Civil War, describes battles as, quote, composed of a hundred desperate struggles between individuals who had no notion of what was going on around them. It was a flailing, wavering, shuddering mass of men and horses. End quote. In pure military terms, Newbury was a draw. Yet some historians consider the First Battle of Newbury to be a defining moment of the Civil War. Trevor Royal writes that, had the Royalists defeated Essex and destroyed his army, Parliament would have been forced to negotiate a peace. London would have been open to attack, and there would have been little stomach for further fighting. But Charles has shown himself to be indecisive, whereas Essex had been bold and resolute, and fully deserved the rapturous welcome which greeted him and his army when they marched back into the capital at the end of the month. In the absence of a quick victory, both sides looked to outside support to gain advantage. The parliamentarians negotiated an alliance with the Covenanters, i.e. those who had led the rebellion in Scotland against Charles's religious policies by declaring the National Covenant. Aware that if Parliament was defeated, they would face the wrath of the King, the Scots promised to send a substantial army to England. In return, the English agreed to pay for his upkeep, and also to work on reforming the Church of England in line with the Scottish Church. In England, religious radicals welcomed such reform, but more traditional worshippers were unhappy with the agreement, which threatened to open up religious divisions yet further, and to give royalist propaganda a useful weapon. King Charles was disappointed at not working out an alliance himself with the Scots, and at failing to secure an army from fellow monarchs on the continent, so he turned instead to Ireland. There he sanctioned a truce, the so-called cessation, which freed up around 10,000 Protestants to fight in England. The cessation was seen in England as the appeasement of Irish Catholicism. The Irish had risen in revolt and created their own provisional army, the Confederate Association. This was a coalition of diverse interests, on the one hand, large landowners who sought reconciliation with the church, on the other, a more radical party. In exchange for their help, they demanded from Charles the restoration of the Catholic Church in Ireland 
and the recovery of lands from Protestant settlers. The public identification of royalism with Catholicism was heightened by developments in Scotland, where Catholic opponents of the Covenanters, under the command of the Marquis of Montrose, allied with the King. Montrose won a series of victories in 1644 against the Covenanter movement, which boosted the royalist cause. By the end of 1643, two new and large parliamentarian armies were formed, one under the MP William Waller, the other called the Eastern Association, led by the Earl of Manchester, with Oliver Cromwell as his second in command. In the first half of the year 1644, despite occasional royalist successes, the King's fortunes were on the wane. Victories in the south-west, north-west, in Lincolnshire and Yorkshire allowed Parliament to concentrate on winning over the north of England, where the Scots joined with the Eastern Association and with local forces to besiege the city of York. Prince Rupert gathered a royalist army which marched through the northwest of England, gathering reinforcements and fresh recruits on the way, and across the Pennines to relieve York. A few miles west of the city took place the largest battle in the war, with perhaps 45,000 men in total. For a long time, the outcome of the war was uncertain, until Cromwell's cavalry turned the course of the battle, which lasted into the moonlit night. The parliamentarians took York and secured their ascendancy in the north. Yet in the next few months, the royalists staged a remarkable recovery. The Earl of Essex headed to Cornwall, where he suffered a humiliating defeat in a series of engagements and the Earl of Manchester and William Waller missed two chances to defeat the King in the area around Newbury. These failures led Parliament to a radical reorganisation of its forces. Their armies were reconfigured and placed under the control of Thomas Fairfax, who had fought well in the north. Oliver Cromwell was made his second in command in what was now the main parliamentary army, which came to be called the New Model Army. After a shaky start, they won a crucial victory against Prince Rupert and the Royalists at the Battle of Naseby on the 14th of June, 1645, where about 30,000 men fought. The battle was long and hard fought, but Cromwell's cavalry were again decisive. Soon after, in September, the Royalists lost the port north of the border when they were defeated at the Battle of Philippore. The parliamentarians swept across the country, recapturing Bristol before taking Devon and Cornwall. The new model army took Oxford in May 1646, though not before Charles had slipped out of the city and made his way to Lincolnshire. He handed himself up to the Scots, daring them to betray their king face to face. Far from being cowed by him, they took him to Newcastle and there tried to force him to sign the Covenant. When the king refused, the Scots handed him over to the English Parliament for a fee, which marked the end of the first period of the English Civil War. The 
The military victory was credited to the new model army, whose high level of discipline gave them an advantage. Their commanders, Fairfax and Cromwell, rose in stature. While Essex and Manchester were dismissed and the leading parliamentarians, John Pym and John Hamden both died, the former of cancer, the latter in battle. Charles typically did his best to try and play off his enemies, and was encouraged by the fact that relations between the army and parliament were strained. There was heavy pressure to achieve a quick settlement, for the war had triggered unrest throughout the country and a new faction, popular within the new model army, coalesced around support for more personal, religious freedom. The so-called independents advocated independent congregations who could decide their own rules of worship, instead of being dictated to by the state or a national church. The army was becoming increasingly politicised, and unhappy with Parliament for the fact that their pay was in arrears. When in 1647 Parliament made a clumsy attempt to disband the army, they provoked a mutiny. A general council of army was formed, which drew up the so-called Heads of the Proposals, a set of demands which it presented to Parliament in June and to the King in July 1647. The proposals called for religious toleration and the replacement of Parliament with regular assemblies elected by a reformed franchise. The generals Fairfax and Cromwell, trying to keep things under control, agreed to join with the men and support their demands. The terms offered to Charles were generous in comparison with what the Parliament offered, but he simply treated the offer as a chance to divide his opponents. In December, Charles moved to the Isle of Wight, though still under the control of Parliament. From there he managed to work out an agreement with the Scots who in 1648 invaded England. At the same time, a number of royalist risings broke out. This was the beginning of the so-called Second English Civil War, a renewed bout of fighting after a period of relative quiet. In the summer of 1648, the parliamentarian armies crushed insurrections in Kent, Essex and South Wales. Then Cromwell led an army north to meet the invading Scots, whom he decisively defeated at Preston. By November, his forces were back in full control of the country. Although many of the MPs still favoured trying to work out an agreement with the King, most army leaders, including Cromwell, had come to the conclusion that he must be deposed. They were furious at his duplicitous scheming and came to see Charles, in Old Testament terms, as a man of blood, who by his outrageous conduct had fallen under the judgment of God and therefore must now be brought to justice. When a defiant parliament voted to pursue negotiations with the King, Cromwell and the officers and their supporters in Parliament organised a coup. They seized London and, through the so-called Pride's Purge, reduced the House of Commons to a small minority, a so-called rump, of their own supporters. 
Nominally, it contained about half the members, but the bulk of them rarely attended, leaving it to the 70 or so hardline collaborators with the army. And so, on New Year's Day, 1649, the Rump Parliament passed, without any opposition, an ordinance for the King's trial on the grounds that he had wished to make himself a tyrant, and had prosecuted a cruel and bloody war for that purpose. King Charles was brought from Windsor to St James's Palace on the 19th of January, and the trial began the next day. He was conducted into Westminster Hall, and the charges put before him. When asked under whose authority he had been called, he was given the answer, in the name of the people of England, of which you are elected king. Charles retorted that, quote, England was never an elective kingdom, but a hereditary kingdom for near these thousand years, end quote. For three days, Charles refused to plead, unwilling to accept the authority of Parliament over him. And so finally the judges declared that the king was a tyrant, traitor, murderer and a public enemy who deserved death. Until the end, Charles acted with dignity and composure. The crowd was too far away to be able to hear him, so he dictated his last words to two attendants, in which he claimed, quote, I die a martyr to the people, end quote. One blow dispatched him, and as the executioner held up the head, According to an eyewitness, quote, there was such a groan by the thousands then present, as I have never heard before, and desire I may never hear again. End quote. And so the deed was done. The king was no more. Charles's death and the subsequent period of experiment with republicanism that followed was not inevitable. The character of the king explains part of the reasons why events turned out the way they did. He was unready to compromise, to try to find some kind of middle way, as his father had done. He intrigued with all, making and breaking promises at whim, alienating many who could have been persuaded to support him if they felt they could trust him. The parliamentarians had also made mistakes, and by the end of 1648 they no longer controlled the army and were reduced to a minority, who were willing to do the army's bidding. Far from resolving the crisis, the execution of Charles guaranteed its continuation. Charles had a 19-year-old son, also called Charles, and what of Ireland and Scotland, neither of whom had agreed to regicide. I will relate the story of the Republic under Oliver Cromwell in the next set of episodes. Taking a look at the wider European and even global context, I will focus on a series of conflicts known to history as the Anglo-Dutch Wars. I have also made a separate episode on the wars of Oliver Cromwell in Ireland around 1649 focusing on the sieges of Drogheda and Wexford. This is now available to patrons of the podcast, who have signed up on patreon.com. It's possible for anyone to join up by going to www.patreon.com 
Stroke History Europe and gaining access to the extra material for just $3 a month. And thank you to those who have already joined. The piano music earlier was from Orlando de la Suisse, called Suzanne Unjour. And the choral music was from William Byrd, the English composer, Mass for Four Voices, the first part. I will leave you with another piece by William Byrd, called The Erd of Salisbury Pavan. I hope you enjoy and can join me next time. All the best and goodbye.